What is up, Brainiacs? We're not giving you a chance to breathe. We're just going to keep season four rolling right along here. We've got on the show with us tonight, the Joe West, composer, producer, engineer, oh, and Grammy Award winner. You're not going to want to miss his story. Let's do this. Welcome to Blabberbrains Show. You know, we're just on a roll. So why not just keep it going? I mean, you know, this show is meant for you people. So we're trying to give you more of us. <laughs> Michael Cadre here. The uh, the guy with the big trucker hat over there is uh, the Big M. What's up, Big M? Hey, up close and personal. There you go. Be <laughs> careful you don't knock your uh, focus out of whack again. No, but, it's uh, bound to happen at some point. Right. Yeah. Well. You're you're always kind of like out of focus. Anyways, I'm on a, yeah, you, but I'm on a different. I'm on a newer laptop, so maybe. No, I maybe mean, general, like when I see you in person, you're kind of out of focus, anyways. But that could be. I my try. Answer. I try to do that. <laughs> so what's new with the Big M? Oh, not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. But I have a funny story to start this show off. I think you'll personally get a kick out of, and well, probably no everybody like else. Present. Will. No time well, like the present. So here's a story. So last night before I go to bed, which is around midnight, um, your stepmother sends me out a message through um, through Facebook and says, hey, Mark, um, you know, hey, Joe wanted me to tell you that he's interested in in seeing you at the us going coming and seeing you at the Hard Rock. You know, do they have tickets for sitting at a table versus just the general mission. And I'm right. thinking to myself, I, I just assume, well, they're coming up here for some sort of vacation or trip, and they're going to be up here for a few days, and it happens to be when I'm down there on September 30th, opening up for that, for the National uh, Leonard Skinner Tribute Band Street Survivors. But I'm thinking, right. I didn't ask anything. So then this morning, you know, I respond again, and what ends up happening is your dad saw the – saw it on Facebook, um, you know, the event, and he's thinking that it, because he's seen it, that I'm coming to the Hard Rock in Tampa, Florida. So, uh, there, uh, there's more than one Hard Rock. Uh, okay. well, I, I don't want to rip on my dad too much, because first of all, I want to give him a shout out. Hey, Pops, how's it going? He's uh, complained that I never give him a shout out, but he watches the show. So um, anyway, so yeah, Dad, th there's more than one Hard Rock Cafe. Uh, and and uh places to see but you are welcome to come up here at pittsburgh anytime and see the big m or the big m maybe you could get booked down there in tampa and then we can make your dreams come true we can be live in front of your naked steaming ears in your hometown there of tampa so i mean um i thought about it i'm like there's no way that somebody's making that they're going to make a trip up here from tampa just to see me doing do an opening set for a band um, and I was well, going to say, no, I mean, but I mean, I, I, again, you know, my, my dad doesn't travel a whole lot. So, um, that probably was not likely going to happen. So sorry, pops, no offense, but you know, you don't travel a lot. So <laughs> no, he probably just absolutely have to. it's showing up on his feed that, you know, that it was probably local, but you think, hey, I, yeah. give him, I give him credit for using Facebook for being on Facebook and, and checking that out. And, uh, you know. You know, he's, he's, he's trying. I mean, he's in retirement now. He's got more time on his hands. He's probably trying to, you know, 
get with the swing of the modern times and using the social media there and watching Blabberbrain show and all the other fun things that uh, go along with being retired and trying to fill up your days. Barb told me she's because because I can't believe it. He thought he thought you were playing in Tampa, not up in Pittsburgh. I went and took a closer look. I says I was going to ask you that eventually, but I just assume you guys were going to be up here that week, and right. you you would and you would go. And I guess um, Barb found some Leonard Skinner music to play for your dad to make sure that he liked them. <laughs> he liked what he heard. First. <laughs> no, I think my dad would like Leonard. I mean, he likes the old like bluegrass country stuff you know um charlie pride stuff like that i think that's more my dad's alley you know hank williams uh and so on and so forth so it's um you know leonard skinner though he'd probably be able to to tolerate more than like let's say acdc or led zeppelin you know or van halen <laughs> something like that so um you know i think it'd probably be tolerable for him yeah i get a kick out of when people will say things like that people don't realize well these bands have been around for a long time like i remember one, when i was visiting when my aunt was still living in florida over here in uh i don't know somewhere near fort lauderdale i can't remember what the sunrise florida right and they got a kick out of there was this older guy had to be in his mid or late 70s and he was swimming but he had a radiator and he was playing the highway to hell album from acdc <laughs> and i'm like Yep. 76. That guy was probably only 30 years old back then. People right. tend to forget that, you know, this band's been around so long. I mean, there's things we're listening to now that's modern. It might be rocking pretty good. You know, people tend to don't realize that, that, you know, that came out back in the day. Just because somebody's, you know, much older. I mean, that music was fresh back then when they were young, you know, and people well, don't, people don't likewise. figure that out. If somebody's in their like mid to late sixties and they're into like Iron Maiden, and you might think that sounds like really weird. You see this old, this old dude or old old lady like rocking out to Iron Maiden, but like when Iron Maiden was like just coming onto the circuit and getting popular, they might have been in their like twenties, you know, late twenties. So uh, maybe even early twenty, early twenties, mid twenties. So you know, yeah, time is is kind of weird, and uh, you know, it's, I always used to think it was funny whenever. Uh, people our age, when we were teenagers, were listening to the, what we considered classic rock, you know, back in the 60s and stuff like that. Because I was always more like listening to what was current, what was new. And, uh, you know, I'm still kind of that way, although I do listen to some, I guess, what, what the youngsters today would consider classic rock. But it's and it is to, to some degree, it's probably more classic rock than classic rock was when we were their age. You know, there might have been like 20 years separation between what we considered classic rock and when we were young. And there's probably like 30 or 40 years separation between what they consider classic rock and when, you know, we probably would like, huh, that's not classic rock. Well, I, I mean, mean Guns, Guns, that, Guns and Roses is classic rock. You know what I mean? Now, I so. mean, it, it is now. I mean, some of that right. stuff is close to 40 years old. I mean, when did Appetite Destruction, Appetite um destruction came out what was that was probably like 87 88 80 80 yeah somewhere around there yep I mean, that's um, a long time ago but that, that brings up a good question um what what do you think uh what do you personally miss from like back in those days i want to say you know we're we're children of the 70s 80s 90s um that it just doesn't translate to like 
either kids today or even modern times today or just is not around anymore? Like, what do you miss about those types of days that uh, that that isn't here anymore? You know, besides mu- music, we always have with us, right? Because we can listen to music. But is there anything from that era you're like, oh, boy, I really miss when we used to do this or listen to this or, you know, go here, or go there, whatever? Yeah, I think probably the biggest thing was, and I don't think it matters whether it was the 80s, 90s, 2005 it's the whole thing of getting together with a bunch of with a group of people and just hanging out like we used to hear in in uh, north for sales there was the greater pittsburgh drive and it was there forever and back probably up until my early probably until my early 20s it would always be tuesday night screen i think it was screen four and no matter what because i think it was like a half price night or something like that on tuesday that you knew people that I went to school with. There were going to be people there. So you could even if you like, yeah, what the hell? I'm not even call anybody. I could go up there and look and you know everybody's cars. And all of a sudden there'd be 50 or 60 people all hanging out there, you know, you know, maybe drinking a little bit and hanging out. And that was, right. you know, that's probably the biggest thing that, that I miss is just that whole thing of or being able to go to a local, like there are a couple local bars that, you know, if I didn't have anything planned, I could go there on a Friday night and I knew there was a bunch of people there that I actually know. And I could sit there and hang out and I'll go out to eat with them and all that. And nowadays, you know, as you get older, you know, that's just not the, that's not the case anymore. Yeah, that's, a, that's, I guess that's, you know, that's one thing with, it's not just about getting older, it's priorities in your life and stuff like this. Like we all, used to always go to a rock club to see a local band play. I mean, I, I don't even know. I mean, I'm sure there are still local bands that play, but it's nothing at all like it was, you know, in the 80s and 90s when we were uh, I think there's, uh, I think there's a lot more of them. It's just that now they're jamming them up into, you know, three and four bands a night. In yeah, the city, I mean, I mean there's maybe, a lot of that going on. But there's just not the rock clubs that like like we used to go to. I mean, they used to have like like a lot of rock clubs in the area that you can go see. Not just the local bands, but a lot of times, you know, the the out of town bands uh, like Talis, you know, with Billy Sheehan coming in or Zaza or something like that. They would come out of town and uh, play those cl- same clubs that we played, you know, you know, in band local bands, and those national acts were coming in and and playing. So. Yeah, I don't think you see that as much or it's different today than it was. Um, you know, I think also that, um, you know, I miss like in the 90s, you know, getting a little bit older and, you know, in our 30s and stuff. Um, you know, we used to always uh, like hang out down at um, uh, Sandcastle at nighttime, which I don't think Sandcastle even has a nightlife anymore. They, there was I a haven't heard there. of they it. Had, they had live bands down there. We would play sand volleyball, get in the hot tub, jump in the pool, you know, watch, you know, bands, whatever, like the Clarks or whoever, or um, whatever, you know, uh, a lot of Dr. No, whoever they're playing down there uh, back in those times. And it was a lot of fun because like, you know, it, it was kind of like, in Pittsburgh, but it was kind of like hanging out at the beach and you had that atmosphere, right? And you had the live music, you had large crowds. Uh, like that was a lot of fun. And I'm like, why would they do away with that? I guess in the generations do like the younger kids just not care about the nightlife and doing stuff like that anymore. Like, you know, I, I know my kids alone, like they, like Hannah's going out right now and she's hanging out with her friends, but they're, it's not like the same type of thing. Like they're getting together and going eating dinner or something like that. You know what I mean? 
nightlife entertainment these days for the, the next generation is just completely different than we were younger. I think it's more extreme. You have a lot of dance club places that are that are going on. I'm sure with Sandcastle, with Club Wet and everything like that, probably a lot of that had to do with, they probably started having problems down through there. You start getting a riffraff of the crap areas, start starting to, starting to come come in and that may be more liability issues. I don't know. I mean, it was a, it was a cool place to hang out. There were a lot of cool places. I mean, I remember going, I always liked Whiskey Dicks down in the Strip. You know, that was yeah. always a cool place. Kangaroos out in North done. Hills. Oh, I, we spent a lot of time at Kangaroos. That was a lot of fun because not only could you like listen to a band or just go there and hang out, um, you shoot pool, you just hang out with it. It, it was just so big. Uh, the place was humongous, right? There was just so much to do there. Um, and the food was, was really a, good too. And the food was good. It, it was just a really cool and fun place to hang out. Boy, I mean, I mean, it's so funny, like how different years and different trends, like where you spend a lot of time at, you know what I mean? Like I said, for a while there was like someplace else or like in my, you know, for the area I was in the South Hills. And then, uh, like I said, there was kangaroos. There was, um, you know, then there's like the place like you were talking about. And then there's the South side where it was always going down to the South side and hanging out down there. Um, Donzies, you know, in the strip district or someplace like that. So it, it, it always seemed to change like with the, every five years or something like that, there was a new place to hang out. Oh, I remember Pete's wildlife. <laughs> yeah, I, remember when I was that. in my early thirties. I was at Pete's wildlife all the time. That, that was a nuts place that I don't think would work in today's society. <laughs> and, you know, um, I just don't, it's, um, I'm, you know, I mean, the girls doing body shots and stuff like that, you know, like you just don't see that kind of stuff anymore, but I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's, it's different. Right. But um, I'm sure there's some things going on that we're not aware of. We just thought into I was really never into the whole dance club thing, even though I went to them occasionally right. and all that wasn't really my really my thing. But well, I'm sure was Peace Wildlife, you know, they they played like dance and rock, but it was still just a fun place to go and just just get nuts and stuff like that. But I think like I say, as people get older, they have families and they have priorities. They stop going out. And then the next generation just don't, they don't make it a priority to do anything like that. And uh times times change, you know, it's just the way it is. But um yep. speaking of retro, um there is something I want to bring up that's a little retro, but I'm saving it for the the blabber boast. So let's cue it up now. Blabber boast. All right. Um this is gonna seem a little weird, but um, uh, I want to boast about the new uh, Def Leppard album, which is um, uh, it's with the uh, <clears throat> it's what's it called? It's called Drastic Symphonies, and with, with Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, they reimagined a lot of their you know catalog of songs, in, including uh, ones from Slang, which I think is a very underrated Def Leppard album. I really like Slang, even though people hated it because it didn't sound like Def Leppard. But I liked it because it had a lot of good songs in there that was very different for Def Leppard to do. Well, they included a couple of songs in here. Now, some of the songs um, were just taking the tracks from the original recording, uh, like Animal or Love Bites and stuff like that, and and laying down, uh, you know, remixing it with symphony over top of it, right? Potting down the guitars or taking the guitars out of the drums at certain points. And uh, and then some sound almost sound like they're 
like either brand new recordings or maybe they were alternate takes from the original recordings and they laid down the the orchestra over top of it I, you know i i think it it's not it's it's not def leppard trying to stay relevant right because they 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 kind of already are amazingly still relevant they're 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 yeah. one of the bands that, that have been around for so many years and still pulling in the 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 crowds and their you know las vegas uh residency and um you know sell out tours and stadiums you know with with motley crew and stuff like that but um they still sound great live even though joe elliott's voice is not what it was back in the heyday he found a way to kind of manipulate his voice to still sound good singing the songs and so they still sound like Def Leppard. But this album was so cool because it like it was just came out of nowhere. It's like, hey, let's put some some symphony to our songs and put it out there. I, me personally, I think it works. I, I love it. I think it's a it was it was it's not even like re, like refreshing the songs, right? They, they didn't go in and like remix their old songs and try to make it sound current and stuff like that. It's just it's a different take on the songs. And I thought it was pretty cool anyway. So I recommend, uh, you know, downloading or buying drastic symphonies for anybody out there. If, uh, if you're a new or old Def Leppard fan, I think that you'll like it. Um, it's still very Def, Le Def Leppard ish, even though it's got symphony to it, uh, that it, it holds up. So have you heard any of that stuff yet? I didn't even know they had an album. <laughs> I, did, <laughs> I, did, I knew nothing. I knew nothing about it. Yeah. It just came out, uh, yesterday or day before something like that. So, um, obviously this it will air, uh, not on the day we're recording. So maybe a little bit earlier than, uh, than what I'm saying, but it's out there now and, uh, it's yeah. available. So how about you? Anything to boast about today? Yeah, actually, this is a pretty interesting product here. You might get into this, the Corvin pivot. I was at somebody's house okay. that, that had this. And then I was watching a few weeks ago, then you know, I, I worked from home and the TV was on in the background and they had a they had a promo for this. And if you called in with the code from Good Morning America, the afternoon edition, you got half off. So this okay. thing here is pretty interesting. It's it's for, you know, for bottles of wine well, inside here. There's a little CO2 capsule and then you have you have this stopper. So what right. it ends what it does is it lets you. It doesn't matter whether it's a small a standard side bottle or a one point, it was a 1.5 or 1.75 liter bottle. You put, you could, it keeps the wine fresh for at least four weeks. Because okay. what's happening is when you put, you open up the bottle, you put this cork, you put this in and you're pouring it. And when you pull it back up, it hits that shot of CO2 down there. So immediately when you open up the bottle, you're sticking, you're sticking the cork in. So you don't, you know, so there's no more air. Tape and they give you two these and they give you two little partridges that are actually inside. Oh, <laughs> I didn't think it was going to shoot out from me unscrewing it, but obviously it does scare the hell out of me. I was more concerned with me losing everything in it, but it has this little cap. I should have brought one of the capsules out. And, um, and what are the replacements cost? Do you know? Did you find out? That I don't know. I mean, the whole system itself with two with the two CO two cartridges was like seventy nine dollars, and I believe the shipping was free on it. Right. And the cartridges are small. From I don't think they're that expensive. I think they're you get a 
like a pack of two of them. They're under $20 for two of them. But the amount in there, you could open up, you could do, work with a lot of bottles of wine for the, for having this in it because it doesn't take that much CO2 to, you know, in a bottle to put in. I used to use the, and it doesn't, it didn't last, it give you a couple of days that hand pump thing that you could, you know, you put on the stopper on top of the bottle and you pump and it kind of puts compressed air, but you're still right. sucking, but it helps it. But this thing goes up to at least four weeks. And then they have another one. I think it's three or four months that it restores. And the person's house I was at that had this, she told me that, you know, she's gone three, four weeks, like she'd get a bottle of something like a, you know, a bottle of something she'd like in a big size and, you know, didn't want to drink any red wine for a while or, you know, just put it to the side and um, come back to it weeks later or just pour a glass here and there. And um, it did, it did, it did the job. In fact, the bottle that I was drinking from is she had opened a bottle of Barefoot Merlot and it was like two weeks old or something like that. And it tasted, and I, I'll buy that occasionally if they have like for pizza or it's a very easy drinking wine. I mean, there's not, you're not going to get tons of oak or anything, but it's very approachable and it tasted exact. It, it tasted exactly the same, not just for a couple seconds, but as I was drinking it, you know how, how it is. You could maybe take a bottle that's been sitting for a few weeks you know, uncork, you know, take the cork back out and pour it. And it tastes okay for the first few sips. And all of a sudden, as the air, it starts mm. to taste, you know, how it tastes when it starts, when it starts tasting bad. And I don't know, this I thing is actually, I think that would work good. I know a lot of, you know, people that drink white wine, like, you know, they, it, it takes them longer to, they buy the bigger bottles. It takes them longer to get it. So I could see that probably being helpful with that. Like me personally, I, I used to use the I use the 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 rubber corks with the pump, but I stopped I pumping. I stopped pumping them because I realized that you know the my wine is gone in two or three days anyway. So I it doesn't last me weeks or anything like that. I don't need to, to preserve it that long. Uh, sometimes you know not, you know on a weekend maybe the, I go through a whole bottle in one <laughs> uh, day, but um you know usually uh, if i open a bottle it's it's gone in a couple of days so i don't i don't know that that's helping see, me with, much with me sometimes i do that and sometimes i won't touch a thing for a week like i'll buy the frontera you know when it's on sale here and it's like only 8.99 for that big 1.5 or 1.75 or whatever it is and sometimes i mean it's not an expensive wine but it's such a great deal buying it that size on here myself. I might have a couple glasses one night. Then, depending on what I'm up to, I just don't, I'm just not in the mood for it. And, you know, after you get past a few days, even with the whole pumping thing or and putting it in a refrigerator to keep it cold and then bring it out, let it get room temperature, you know, and all that, it just, you know, it starts to taste You're terrible. You're putting wine in the fridge? Yeah, actually, that will help preserve, preserve it a little longer. I, you remember, I used to do a lot of, wine and spirit tastings years ago. And that was a recommendation by Southern Wine and Spirits, what you could do to get a couple more days out of it. But if you want it right away, all of a sudden the bottle's cold. So mm -hmm. what are you going to do? You're not going to put it in a glass and I don't think I'll microwave this wine for 10 seconds and bring it back to the room <laughs> well, and get it to 65 degrees or something, I, you know. I don't typically buy the big bottles of wine. So that's why they, you know, I mean, they don't, they're not going to, well, it's not going to take me a week or so to to go through a bottle. Yeah. Uh, I, but I, I understand those who do. I mean, so, you know, well, sometimes I can see it being very helpful. 
there's been times I bought an expensive bottle and just because whatever I was up to, I was heading out or whatever, I didn't end up going back to the bottle. And, right. you know, it's, you know, for a $10 bottle, it's not so big of a deal, but you buy something for, you know, you really like that's on sale and it's 25 or $30, you know, I mean, probably if it wasn't half off, Mike, I probably wouldn't have, I don't think I'd pay $150 or whatever it right. was for it, you know, but 79, I think it was $79 and it was, I'm pretty sure the shipping was free too, but it was that good morning America. They have always some sort of deal on, I forget what day of the week it is. I just happened to have the sound on slight in the background. I'm looking back like, Ooh, I just, I saw that a couple of weeks ago over somebody's house. And then when I did that, I sat there for a minute, went and made a call. I'm like, I'm rewinding and I'm going to rewind it. And they had the thing. It took my phone up there and, right. you know, to scan it and then, it, and ended up buying it. But it, yeah, I, I've only, I've only used it once. I have a bottle, I have a bottle of Frontera Malbec sitting in there. It's now been probably close to a week and I'll, I'll crack it when I eat something after our show today. And, you know, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, be having a glass of it and see how, and see how it really works. Right. Well, that's cool. Um, again, I guess if, uh, if, you know, the, the sale was probably limited sale, people are probably going to miss it, but I guess maybe they can go out and just try to find it. Maybe uh, Amazon or some other place will have it on, on sale at some point in time, or maybe someone's going to want to pay full price for it if they find it, uh, you know, useful enough for them. So I think it was half off. It was either 139 or 159 and they have a couple, like I said, they had another unit. It's really expensive, but you could get a few months. It's just like, I have no, I have no need for that one. It was much more expensive. Right. All right. Well, that's cool. Thanks for sharing. And uh, that'll end this segment of... Webermost. <clears throat> All right. So we have uh, we have coming up uh, in a little bit, we have The Joe West. I like to give him the title, The Joe West. Uh, I'm not sure if they call him that anymore. When he was uh, a local boy here in, in, in Pittsburgh, uh, that's what kind of everybody called him whether he knows that or not i think he probably does but maybe he doesn't but anyway, i still like to call him the joe west anyways he's moved on to bigger and better things in nashville tennessee uh you know i one of the things i like about this show is is not just being able to bring people on that everybody knows about and have a different conversation with those people but i like to bring people on that people should know about because they probably know their work even though they don't maybe know the name and i'm pretty sure you're going to know a lot of the stuff that joe west has done yeah, um, in the music industry and everybody i don't want to say everybody in the music industry but a lot of people in the music industry know exactly who joe west is and know uh, about his recording studio um so it's gonna be a fun conversation to have with him so and um speaking of music i wanted to talk about one other thing um might be premature to talk about it because none of us can uh, preview it just yet. But I've 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 seen the the track list, and I think it's worth at least a a conversation to talk about it. And that's uh, have you seen about the the new? Uh, and this is going to sound weird. The new Dolly Parton Rockstar album that she's doing. Yeah, I mean, it, there's a real there's a lot of musicians that are on one or two tracks of it. I saw the. 
it must be a double album. I mean, it's just it's a, there's a lot long. of tracks, right? Well, I mean, in today's day and age, you know, unless you buy an actual vinyl, you know, there's there's no. I mean, I'm sure she's going to press some CDs or whatever. Maybe she will have some vinyls. Um, it might even be like like three vinyls. Who knows? There's a lot. But I I, I actually took some notes here. I don't normally read off of notes on this show, but uh, I just want to read through the list of some of the the, the people that are going to be guesting on the album to um i guess it might get some people excited some people say meh it's dolly part and whatever I'm, I'm interested in hearing what these sound like but uh, anyways uh richie sambora steve perry sting ann wilson john fogarty kid rock steven tyler stevie nicks peter frampton joan jett miley cyrus pink kevin cronin debbie harry elton john melissa etheridge lizzo um and uh there's also going to be a, a um a track on there that that's combining rob halford and nikki six and john five uh which should be interesting uh simon lebon cheryl crow uh pat benatar and neil Girardo, um uh, michael mcdonald paul mccartney and ringo Starr. that should be interesting having them both play together uh and also ronnie van zant and artemis powell along with the recently late gary rossington um and, and others that's pretty much the the big list of of the rundown of those i don't know how lizzo made an honor and sasha they're they're not rockers so why would you have a album called rockstar and have lizzo and sasha on there i don't know but anyways um i guess she's just trying to you know make it uh you know miley cyrus i get it you know she's done some rock stuff um so i get that um and plus they're like you know that's her godmother <laughs> in real life so i understand yeah. wanting to partner with with miley cyrus to to do that stuff but anyways um she's uh has some new songs on there but she's also redoing some old classic rock songs yep. with a lot of these people on there so what's your thoughts on all that well the first thing i heard was that nikki six was actually going to be playing a pre-recorded tracks to record this studio re his part not. on two songs <laughs> that's what i that's what i heard i heard that it's pre-recorded so he's going to spend 10 hours to put together the bass tracks the fake in a studio for a three and a half minute song right but, and then just come in and just uh just just strum the bass and not actually play right it will be a big hit it's going to be it's it's going to be it's the album's going to be a big hit because people her getting into the rock i mean look i i pay attention to country music i mean i really didn't a whole lot of the more classic stuff but i mean i'm pretty familiar with dolly parton and and i mean she's somebody who wrote a lot of her own hit songs she could actually play guitar if you see her when she was much younger before she really hit big she could right. play guitar and everything like that oh, yeah. and i think that in a great song wrote a lot of her own hits not in a room with 20 people but actually writing writing them herself and i think i think it's going to be a big hit people you know with the whole thing with her getting into the rock and roll hall of fame and yeah i you know i, I get that whole thing same with willie nelson get going to be the next country artists it seems like it's more of a music hall of fame i love hall and oats but they're really not and they're and they're, and they're really not to me a rock and roll either but she promised that she'd put an album together if you know and she did it seemed like she did it pretty quick did it quickly right. too i mean and and to get a lot of people to join and if you've ever seen any interviews of her or she there's a show that 
Brian Johnson from ACDC was doing for a while on Access TV, where he would spend a day with, you know, with, with, no, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. and some of them were rock, you know, and some of them were, and he had Dolly Parton on there, and you get a really chance for her to talk and all that. It was, she's just really, she's really cool. I think a yeah, lot of people and, just like her. She's put a lot of, she's pumped a lot of money into good causes. And, you know, I mean, she, I think it's going to be a big hit because it will get a ton of country airplay. And it's probably going to sound more country-ish than anything. I don't expect probably. her to start screaming like David Lee Roth did, you know, but it's probably going to be, it's probably going to be pretty good. It's probably going to be good. I'm not going to say it's phenomenal, but it's probably going to be good. But it's going to be a big crossover success for her. The rock stations are going to pick up on it, and the country stations are going to run wild with it. I, I, I'm going to take a wild stab and say that it's probably going to be better than Pat Boone's I'm in a Metal Mood. Um, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I had that. I bought that album just for kicks, and it was just – it was fun. But, you know, it wasn't serious, and it wasn't good, but – Pat Boone, you know, singing heavy metal songs was just, uh, it was, it was, it was kind of, I don't want to say nostalgic or cool. It was just different. <laughs> you know, the fact that he took that on though, was doing that. So that, you know, the thing I like about uh, Dolly Parton, you're talking about like in, in interviews is she is just someone who doesn't give two F's about anything that anybody thinks and she's going to speak her mind. She's not going to be, you know, pushed or, or bullied into, you know, giving somebody a soundbite that they want to get, you know, I remember her in an interview, they were trying to get her to, to kind of rip on, on, um, Trump and she wasn't taking the bait and, and, you know, so, and then she's done that like kind of her whole life, you know, they it's been asked about politics, whether it be with uh, Reagan or, um, you know, Nixon, even back in the day stuff. And she just would not take the bait. And, um, but she's someone who speaks her mind. And if you don't like what she's saying, she's not likely to come out and apologize for what she's saying, because I think she's one of these people that, um, is quick to say something, but is also very She's thought it through in a matter of microseconds. And there's people out there that can do that, right? They can process that super fast and say, is this safe to say? It's not safe to, safe to say. I'm going to say it because it's what I feel. And I, 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 it's, you know, probably not going to kill my career. So I'm going to stand by it because whatever I'm coming out, it's not going to be a mistake. It's how I feel. You know what I mean? If, if, if that's, if that's, if you're following me, you know, she's, she's able to, and there's, there's very few people that do that right now. There's, there's a lot of people today that are saying things, um, speaking their mind. And I actually really appreciate that. Like I never in a million years thought that I would, uh, agree with things that people like Ricky Gervais or Russell Brand or Bill Maher or anybody like that would, would, would say, out there and you know because ideologically i i don't align with them but i think that just goes to show like how screwed up a lot of things have become because the stuff that they're saying now is the same stuff that they believed back then it's just sounding more sane and more reasonable and more logical now and um you know i think what that also means is you know you put your I don't want to say it's not just politics. It's just you put your ideologies aside. I mean, Bill Maher is an atheist and he makes he's made fun of Christians and stuff like that, you know. So I don't 
I don't align with him at all on any of that stuff. But if you put your your ideologies aside and just get down to the root of things that you believe and what you stand for, I think, you know, we as a nation probably have a lot more in common with each other than than we're letting on as a society through social media and stuff right now because everybody's taking their sides and they you know they 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 you know, buried their flag and said this is my side this is my side and and it's just a, such a shame because I think we have more in common yeah. with each other than um than we're letting on you know because we're just too we've got our heels dug in yep. and it's just, it's just a shame but it's far left is it's either extreme this way or extreme that way and you're being told that you have to pick one and somebody right. like dolly parton you know has views that are from this side and from this side there's another person who's kind of like that too of course he tells his opinions on stuff there are some things that he's very conservative on there are also some things that he's very liberal on and liberal on and that's the and that's the drummer from Poison, Ricky Rocket. Okay. He's that type of guy, too, where, you know, he's a big bike guy, but he's, he's a big gun guy, but he feels this way about certain people having guns, and he sides with this, but he also believes in this over here, and he doesn't really care whether just somebody has your, a pro Sticking problem. to your gun, guns, so to speak, on what you believe and, and not being persuaded one way or the other by the mob. And the mob mentality, and I love that. That's what I'm, you know. Some of the guys I'm just mentioning, I like the fact that they're not caving to the people that they more politically align with, and they're just sticking to their guns of what they personally believe, and they're not afraid to speak their mind. And Dolly, you know, I couldn't tell you if she's a Republican or a Democrat because she doesn't. First of all, she's I mean, point blankly said, "Look, you shouldn't know my politics. That's, I'm, I'm in the business of, of country music. I'm not a you know why are you looking to me about where I align politically." And I other celebrities have done the same, and I, I appreciate that as well. Um, but I don't know. I think I'm just uh, maybe I'm getting a little more mushy and sentimental in my older age, and I'm mellowing out. And <laughs> I think she's. I think Dolly Parton has got views on. Both sides seems more kind of from the middle right. of things from anything that I've ever read read or or heard from her. And so she's an I inter mean, interesting person, and uh, you know, somebody, you know, I'd add her to my my uh, lunch, uh, list of uh, lunch dates that I'd like to sit down and have a chat with. She seems really interesting. So, uh, so anyways, but uh, let's wrap this up, and we'll take a short break, and uh, we'll come back with. The, and I'll confront him about that, the Joe West in a second. Be right back. Blabberbrains. Welcome back to Blabberbrains show. We are really pleased to welcome our guest today, the Joe West. Let's give him a big round of applause. Yeah. There's a big crowd. You can't hear it, but there's a big crowd going nuts right now, Joe. So <laughs> thanks for being on the show, Joe. I, I Are you... Do you remember being called and considered? Do you still uh, be referred to as the Joe West? Was that a thing? That was a the thing. Yes. West. Everybody in Pittsburgh referred to you as the Joe West, and I wasn't sure if you ever were. I don't even know what that, that means. It's like I guess it's good. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I think it's a, it's a status symbol, you know, it's like, you know, okay. you know, there, there's, there could be five or six Joe Wests out there, but you know, you're, you are the Joe West, you know, you're an entity. You would think that I would remember, would have remembered that because it seems flattering, but I do not recall that. So. Well, well, that's a, that was that was a thing in the back in the day. So I'm sorry it's not still a thing. And for those of you in the music industry and that uh, to go to Joe's uh, beautiful music studio, maybe we could pick that back up again because I think he deserves that title. You know, there was a band in New York. I want to say it might even be the Pittsburgh band Anti Flag. Yeah, I remember them. Reminded me because yeah. I had my shoes off at the console, and my big toe looks like I have Fred Flintstone feet. <laughs> I mean, Joe, the biggest toe in the business. I think it's crazy about one of those. I'm almost positive it was Anti Flag. Uh, right. It's in New York, though. I remember that. I don't know if you want to bring back that nickname, but um, <laughs> who knows? Maybe <laughs> if it gets you a free ham sandwich when you go to the deli. Get. Yeah, that's I'll right. Take whatever I can get. So, uh, Joe, um, I if for People who might not be, uh, you know, familiar with you and your body of work, um, you know, we always like to have people on the show here that uh, that people should know because they know your work, whether they know your name or not, they know the work that you've done. And I, I, I rarely, if ever, use notes on this show, but I have to because there's just so much to who you are and what you've done. Uh, I've got to kind of read down a list of these accomplishments, and I'm probably going to miss a bunch of stuff. But, uh, you know, a, a, a writer and producer, and you've been nominated for multi-Grammy Awards and won a uh, Grammy Award with uh, Joey and Rory. Um, is that right? Uh, yeah. For their album? Uh, and uh, was that... Um, oh, crap. And were did you uh, win two with them or just one? You were nominated for another one with them, weren't you? No, no, just one. The, the last record they did. Hymns, was it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you've been nominated for Dove Awards. Uh, mm -hmm. You've you've written and produced or mixed uh, several number one Billboard uh, albums, including well, Rory and uh, Joey. They uh, they had uh, that album was number one Billboard country album, number one Billboard Christian music album. You've written songs uh, for people like Toby Keith and Tim McGraw and Keith Urban and and uh, and, and even. Um, Warrant. I remember. <laughs> I asked you about this a couple of years ago because um, yeah. I was like really get, getting into uh, louder, harder, faster, and I saw your name come up on one of the credits, and I'm like, "What? It can't be that Joe West." And I looked, and it was you. You 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 helped write uh, "You in My Life" with Robert Mason. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take a pause on your list of accomplishments because I don't want to bypass that. Well, how did that come about? Um. That's a good question. You know, so many you get to in the writing room with people from so many different ways. You know, your publisher will hook you up, or sometimes a friend. I want to say, oh, that was probably. Do you know Jerry Goldenson? I do not. Jerry Goldenson is a Pittsburgher, and he uh, is the president and CEO of KHS America, a big music brand. Before that, he was a Pearl. He was a senior VP at Pearl Drums, and I think one of the guys at Pearl was in. Warrant, right? Play guitar, okay. right? So I think it was probably through that connection, and then inevitably we just, you know, me and Robert were introduced. It might have been, it might also have been um, Chris Van Tassel, who uh, is one of the owners in J Rocket Audio pedals. You know, they have the Archer, the Dude, those cool guitar pedals. 
it might have been him as well. But you know, a lot of friends would be like, "Oh, you gotta, you know, someone comes over the studio, and next thing you know, <laughs> you know, they're on your calendar, and you're writing with them." I've written a bunch with with Robert. He's a great dude, a real talented dude. Great singer, yeah, great He's singer. Hit me too. up this last couple months. Uh, I think he lives in Vegas, if I remember correctly. But um, he gets out to Nashville every once in a while. And we try to write. He's great. That's awesome. Good, good little tidbit. Um, you've also engineered, mixed, and remixed for people like uh, Jimmy Wayne and Warren Zevon, Emmy Lou Harris, even Dora, Dora Pesh. You work with Dora Pesh? Yeah. Uh, Justin Timberlake, uh, Shakira, Jewel, Mercy Me, Phil Wickham, and something else I got to talk to you about, my friend. <laughs> um, our buddy uh, Greg Vizza uh, alerted me to the fact that you mixed the original Flyleaf EP. Yeah. And I, I just thought that the reason that came up is the, f- the fact that I've been working with Lacey on a, on a movie about her life and like working personally with her. We wrote the the kind of script together and uh, she has an amazing life story, but I had no idea that you were even involved in that, that way. Did you do it when they were passerby or whenever they changed to Flyleaf? No, it was Flyleaf. It was there. I had, I can't remember which came first. I had a roommate in New York City when I moved to New York City. His name was Romeo Thomas. Eventually went up through the ranks, different record labels, and was um, head of sales and artist development for James Deaner's label. Was it James Deaner's? It was called Octone. Um, Octone, Octone Records. Was it right. James Deaner? I think yeah. it was James Deaner's label. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I would occasionally do some mixes for for that label. And I, I think I did a band on there called Dropping Daylight, which is an awesome rock band from Minneapolis. It was like Incubus meets uh, Ben Folds 5. There's a piano mm. player. Weird. Yeah. Really cool. So, and I think that, and I did the singles for that band. I mixed the singles for the two singles off of that record. And, and then I believe the Flyleaf thing came up and they asked me to do some mixes for that. Uh, on the EP, I think I did, I did I'm So Sick and Fully Alive. Awesome, and yeah. A couple more, but those are the two that I recall, the ones I think those were the popular ones. And I, uh, I, I want to tell you some inside information that you may or may not know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lacey has personally told me that she loves the mixes from the EP way more than those versions of those songs on their first album. Oh, yeah, that's nice. That's nice. So, you know, someone recently was talking to me about that. So I went onto the internet and I was looking for those mixes, you know, because I don't have them anymore. Right. I found them and everyone seemed to love the EP mixes and they were great. They were raw. The band was, you know, it was like lightning in a bottle. And and, and I've since hung out with Howard Benson a bit who did the other record after that. Right. Mm-hmm. And is it Mike Plank- Planknikoff, I think his name is pronounced? mix that record um and that record's an interesting record i don't think it's bad by any means but it's you know music's so subjective some people probably that's their ride or die record you know and right and deviates from it they don't like but um i i thought we did a pretty good job on that ep i ended up producing some tracks on that record too the big record right okay producing and mixing some tracks in there and and i th- rem- vaguely remember the band being on tour nonstop. And the label sent them to Nashville, and we did a whole acoustic record of yeah, they did yeah that big record uh huh which was I, yeah I, I have it on digital I have that uh, release so you really, did that one too I did all that stuff yeah wow that's really and cool. it was a blast I loved that band I did some MTV mixes for them where they had some problems you know the video record side was really bad so I'm sitting in my studio 
re-hitting cymbals and, you know, <laughs> sort of remanufacturing a drum kit that had been thrown into a wood chipper, you know, by just right. one distorted over top. <laughs> a lot of good times. I loved that band. And I love, I don't get to do a lot of heavy rock anymore. I did a band right. called Lifer that was on Universal and, Every once in a while, you know, there's that there's that section where you do death metal, and it's like I didn't really love death metal because right. it's too much. I love the rock stuff that's just really intense, and and that Flyleaf record was just fantastic. I do those are the kind of records you just figure out a way to do. Usually right. they're on labels, so it's not that hard financially to commit to them. But um, what a great record! What a great band, and they were great. Keep yeah, they're back. They're actually reunited right now. Lacey uh, decided to reunite with them for a handful of shows this year, and so they're oh, out there. They just, me. they just, they just played Vegas, and who knows? It might lead to oh, maybe more down. recording. I got, a, I got enough room for a fifty-foot prevost in my parking lot. I can run them on an extension cord, and we can make a record down at my barn. You're going to have to wrestle with uh, her husband, Josh, about that, though, because they built a recording <laughs> studio in their basement, and that's where they do all of their recording. But, uh, you know, maybe to be back with the whole band, it would make sense for them all to be in a bigger studio. So well, Maybe I'll mix the record. You know, you never know how you're going to fit in on projects. I was telling another podcast, I was telling them the story of make, being the person you want to be, mm -hmm. right? I made a decision early on that I was going to celebrate my friend's successes because it's not a natural inclination, especially to be around your friends start to have success and you're not having it yet. And there's a whole, like, it's like a punch in the gut. Mm. And I made a decision early on to be happy. It wasn't natural, but I eventually embraced it. And it's the favorite part of my life now, but uh, I was working on a, a really great rock, rock artist out of New York named Chris Grace. And it was like perfect circle tool. Very cool. He was a really talented artist. And he, um, he got the opportunity to work with Malcolm Byrne, which is a Grammy award winning dude, mm -hmm. uh, really stellar producer. And me and Chris had been making records, four or five records together. And he came to me sheepishly to tell me he was going to go make this next record with Malcolm Byrne. And I was pumped for him. I was excited. And I was like, man, why don't you take out a U-47 that he sounded great on? And I had an old set of these Neumann mic pre's that the Beatles used to use, these old V-72s, two mic pre's that are just famous. And I said, take these up to Kingston. We were in New York City at the time. And I said, take them up there. You know, this is the best vocal chain I've ever heard on you. And so they used that for the record. And he came back and played me the record. And he was, um, he ended up just not being happy with the record. Uh, the label or the people that were involved with it weren't happy with the record. So they asked me to mix that record. So I mixed mm -hmm. that record and ended up, Malcolm loved the record, had me do a Sparkle Horse record with him, a Rachel Yamagata record with him, and then asked me to come to Nashville and make the Amy Lou Harris record that, that got nominated for a Grammy in 2002. And as a byproduct of that, I got to work on that Warren Zevon record that won the Grammy that mm -hmm. year in our category in 2002 for the win, the last record. You know, I did a, a awesome. duet with m and um, All of that would not have happened had I done the thing that my natural gut would have told me to do, which was like be mad that this guy wanted to go make a record somewhere else without me. Something right. I thought was mine. But since I embraced it, uh, it ended up, you know, I moved to Nashville, ended up writing a bunch of number one songs and producing a lot of records. And... and 
having a son and building a life down here that would have not been had I not just embraced the reality that a friend of mine wanted to move on and do something else creative with someone else. And um, it's one of those things that you can point to in your life and say, man, my life would have been totally different had I been the old version of myself, the version right. that needed a little bit of cleaning up. So that's a great right. story. And it's, it's a yeah. point one that's literally changed it redefine the course of my life and career. And it's an inspiring uh, notion note to those out there that may be on the cusp of struggling with something like that, because I think a lot of people do at some point in time, um, whether to be uh, jealous or spiteful or angry. And, uh, but, you know, we're all on our own path. We all have our own journey. We all uh, have our own destination. And, you know, sometimes, you know, where you think you're going is not where God's planning you to go. You're just, you know, meant to go in a different direction. And sometimes you just got to say, okay, we're, you know, just point me in a direction, just turn me in the way I'm supposed to go and I'll go. And, but you're not going to get there if you're, if you're clinging on to bitterness and hate and anger. Yeah. You know, and keep in mind that if all your friends are having success, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Yeah. May not have hit you yet, but if you're all your friends are that talented, odds are you're hmm. keeping up with them, and it will sooner or later, you know, broken watches right twice a day. So <laughs> soon enough, it will be your time, and you know, you will have your moment. I've met yeah, a I think lot of people don't handle it people. so well. Yeah, I mean, I think you still have to uh, do your due diligence, and you got to keep your head on straight. Um, but you've got to be present in the moment to realize that, you know, yeah, you're, you're probably in the right ballpark, but maybe you're not in the right seat yet. Or the and, time's not uh, right. It's not time. Yeah. Life comes yeah. right at right on time. Every time. Every time. Every, yep. You think you want to go to Berkeley and Boston and then the world tells you you're not doing that. Hey, trust me. I've, I've had to reinvent myself several times and all of that has just been willing to, um, go where I feel, feel like I'm being led and not be stubborn about it to say, no, I want to do this and this is what I want to do. And I don't care, whatever you, you got to sometimes say that, you know what it's, this is, this is, I, I wasn't in the right place. You know what I mean? And be willing to go to the right place. And if you stick with it long enough, if you, if you use the, the talents that were given to you and you, Stick with it. And like you said, surround yourself. That's like, that's one of the biggest keys, I think, to success is surround yourself and make friends with people who are successful. And don't try to ride their coattails, but learn from them. Why Why did they get successful over someone else? Sometimes it's dumb luck. Sometimes it's being in the right place at the right time. But a lot of times it's because of what they're doing and uh, that they're doing the right things. And sometimes if you just are observant and you pay attention to that stuff, you know, you can utilize that for your benefit as well. Yeah. Um, Amen. So, um, so much more. I mean, boy, there, there's so many more accomplishments you have. I just, like I said, I had to, I had to uh, uh, you know, stick on the fly leaf thing because uh, like I said, the, the personal connection I have there, but yeah. um, I, I want to talk about, you know, cause you and I go way back over 30 years um, and it's so cool to see, somebody like you talk about celebrating someone else's life, dude, I celebrate your life. You're, you're doing a fantastic job. Uh, cause when we were starting out, I watching you at the mixing board and this was early in your career, right? You, you were just getting going, um, with, with being an engineer and, and stuff like that. But 
you were, I, I can always see the wheels turning in your, and just in your face as you're looking at the board and you're, you're trying to figure things and you're listening to things, man, I, I could see it. it. It was like watching a supercomputer work <laughs> when you're doing, you're doing all that. And I'm like, this, he's got to go on. And I, I've yet to even work with anybody else locally here in Pittsburgh who was able to achieve, um, you know, the quality of sound that you were you know, getting even back in the day there. And it showed that you had just a natural talent for, for doing this. And and I knew whether you knew at that time or not, I knew that you were, were exactly in the right field. You were where you're supposed to be. Um, but so take us from, from your Pittsburgh days uh, to, to Nashville and, and, and in between what, what, what did your journey look like getting out of Pittsburgh? What, I mean, cause that had to be, um, a really hard decision to say, I've got to uproot myself and go somewhere in order to make a success for myself. What did that look like? Well, you're, I don't know if your audience knows about your, what was it? Dream makers. Was that the name? Was, uh, yeah. The, we are the dream project. The song was called dream makers. It was kind of a local Pittsburgh version of we are the world, which was a very, very difficult thing to pull together. Experience to be a part and really nerve wracking. You had a lot of people in the room <laughs> that you didn't want them to think you were incompetent. And I was on the verge of being incompetent any moment, you know, during that part of my life. Um, but that was a great record. And it was fun to make because you really felt like the energy in that studio during those sessions was just off the charts because everybody felt like it was something was just impending. And there's film crews there. And, you know, those were. Lots of records like that in Pittsburgh were pointing me towards outside of Pittsburgh. I did a band called High Voltage, uh, and the record yeah, got a I lot know, of I know all those guys. Yeah. out of town. Uh, Ron St. Germain, who was a big producer, Stones and Living Keller, all these big records. It mixed the Tool record. He flew in on his private plane, twin engine King Air. He flew in to steal High Voltage from me. And I was elated that it was worthy to be stolen. You know, I was just so <laughs> excited that I had done something that had gotten on the radar that a guy like that would fly in to meet this band and work wow. with them. You know, and whether that meant I got to go along and participate or whether that meant that, uh, you know, it was the end of my road with those guys. I asked the band's manager, which was Nick Katniece Sr. Yeah, I'm very good friends with Nick, yeah. Nick is a good dude. We catch up usually once a year on the holidays. We make some phone calls. But Nick um, arranged for me to go pick up Ron St. Germain from the airport and drive him back to the studio to meet these mm. guys. And I was just like, you know, for me, this guy had done everything that, you know, if I could have been a part of one thing, one thing that people would point their finger at and say, I remember that record, or it was a gold record, or it was anything, a radio hit, um, this guy had done ton of stuff like that all the 311 stuff and he was just a monster dude right on the way back from the airport taking him back to the studio he said to me he said you got to get out of pittsburgh he said you're not going to make it in pittsburgh like yeah. I mean, like what are you doing kid get out of right. pittsburgh yeah right, you know, right, Pittsburgh's right. not gonna you can't do what you need to do in pittsburgh and that's the only thing i remember from that whole encounter but it's the reason I moved. And I was 24 at the time. Um, I started automation when I was 18. Worked there for probably whatever that math works out to be. And that probably about six, seven years at automation. Then moved to New York City where I just didn't know anybody. Went mm -hmm. up to New York City and 
One of my assistants, Romeo Thomas, he's the guy who eventually became head of sales for an A&M Octone, he's a bunch of other record exec stuff he's done at, at Columbia, Sony, and uh, you know, um, Epic. He was my roommate. He moved up with me and went on and had a bunch of success on his own right. You know, partner with um, Free Solo, that's James Deaner's new uh, conglomerate. But um, we're just two young kids living in New York, pursuing mm. something, not knowing anyone. And it was a beautiful time. It was a great time to be in New York. I met my wife there, who I'm married to. She celebrated 25 years of wedded bliss this last yeah. week. Congratulations. So, um, it was just doing it. And um, I had a supportive family, my mother and father. I knew that I always had a couch to nice. fail down onto. You know, if I failed, I could always had a place. I didn't have a value, a great value of financial security. So it wasn't like there was external pressures of people expecting me to become a CPA or a lawyer or a doctor. You know, I could really pursue this thing. So I spent a decade in New York just trying to be great, learning what it took to be great, learning that I wasn't good enough, learning that I, you know, I used to say, you know, hey, if I had that console, that Neve or that SSL, I could do that. <laughs> yeah. And you get pushed behind one and 12 hours later, your hands are buried in your, you know, your face is buried in your hands because you can't, can't get the results that these guys were getting. Mm. Right. So I learned a lot of that. I learned a lot of how to be accountable and get goals and pursue them and to, woodshed and more of attrition and just being a better songwriter, a better record producer, a better mix engineer. All that stuff came to me in New York over a decade of just, I got to the point in New York where all I was really doing was mixing records. I found out all the labels would pay you $500 a day max to record a record. But uh -huh. if you mixed a record, you could charge them whatever you wanted as long as you could justify it with success. <laughs> and after wow. I started mixing big records, you know, you could make two, three grand a day. Some days, you know, I made 10 grand a day on a specific project, not right. like, not as a whole catalog of work, but, you know, to work at rates that are astronomical, I found that you could do that as a mix engineer. And, and I enjoyed doing it. It was a lot funner than going up to upstate New York and spending 30 days in a studio with, you know, the schedule of making a record was kind of laborious. Mixing mm -hmm. a record was all fireworks. So I did that for, probably the last six years, all I was doing was mixing records. Um, and, and New York was a great place to become great or become the best I could be. Great, great through the lens of me, which right. was probably, you know, not to my heroes, it's garbage, but to, you know, <laughs> it, it's been enough to keep me in mortgages and, um, you know, in the music business the past 30 years. And then I'm with Malcolm Byrne, doing that Chris Grace record, I made my way to Nashville and then realized, oh my goodness, there are all, this, all these songs I've been writing, which felt like Eagles songs in 70s Yacht Rock. What I was right. writing was becoming in, in Nashville at the time. Keith Urban had just released Golden Road and Rascal Flats had kind of replaced the last generation of, you know, Brooks and Dunn kind of older country or Kenny Rogers older country. You know, they were in an era that was they were cutting and making records that felt incredibly similar to the music that I naturally did. So I got a publishing deal and I was mixing a ton of records in Nashville and I just had to stop. I just had to stop taking bookings, which was tough for me being from Pittsburgh. I'm, you know, I'm a catch a fish, eat a fish kind of guy. <laughs> so uh, to turn down the good paying mixing gigs to just be writing every day was very tough. 
even with my publishing deal with Sony. Um, and then eventually, three years to the day, I think it was maybe two years to the two years. I got signed probably in 2006 and in 2000, September 2007, I had my first number one as a songwriter. So oh. it, it, was, it came quickly. I was lucky, you know, but I'd been trying this for 20 years at that point, you know, unsuccessfully. So it was not the overnight success that it appeared. But <laughs> yeah, And then I went just, on from there to just write a bunch of songs that ended up, some of them became number ones and some other you know, hits and producing records and, and um. You know, and then finally I came to the realization that I could stay in the music business, which as a musician, you're always wondering if you could be in the music business next year, the luxury of being in the music business. But um, right around that time is when I kind of got the security and the comfort of knowing, hey, I'm in the music business now. I don't I don't have to go and find uh, a plan B. So that's it in a nutshell. Well, what, um, what transitioned you from, you know, knowing that you're – you know, a, a really good, great engineer to uh, the, the songwriter that is writing songs where people are picking up on it saying, hey, I want to record this. Or did it go that way? Or were you were you asked to collaborate? Were, like, how yeah. did that transition happen? Well, I was always writing songs, but I was a good producer. I didn't foist them upon the artists I was working with. Right. I didn't you I didn't like do that inappropriate thing where I was always pushing my songs on people. Right. So in most of the things I was doing were artists that were bands. So they already had what they were doing, like the, the gathering field, for example, you know, they have a thing. They're not going to be cutting any of my songs. Right. 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 Uh, but you know, me and Dave Pahanish were writing a ton and we had, a, we had a publishing arrangement. We had a publishing deal with this company out of New York that was placing a lot of our songs. This is before I moved to Nashville. They were placing a ton of these songs in, in television. You know, so we were all over the soap operas. Soap operas would play our music, <laughs> which was a beautiful thing because they were network shows, right? Right. And then they started putting out these soap opera CDs. So if you go find the Days of Our Lives CD, you're going to find some <laughs> Joe West and Dave Pahari songs on there. <laughs> so we made a ton of money because it was network television. So we made, you know, a ton of money for us off of our music, which was tens of thousands of dollars over the years of placing all these songs where we were like, Oh, we knew there was value in, in songs. We knew that some people could do it for a living. It just wasn't us. Right. right. Songs. right. When I got to Nashville, I saw all these people, there's a giant community of songwriters here that all have publishing deals, you know? So it was, wasn't like someone might have a publishing deal in Pittsburgh, but they were, you never saw them. They were, there wasn't a, there wasn't like any kind of ecosystem where you were hanging out, you know, like we play, songwriter shows and there are tons of people writing on music row. So you, as making the records, you were involved with a lot more songwriters. And I was like, I started to just, once I got the publishing deal, they just started pitching my songs all over. And eventually it, it, nobody was interested at all. But then eventually we had a hit. Me and Dave wrote, do you believe me now for Jimmy Wayne, which was a three week number one. And I produced that record and, Mix that record. In fact, I played all the instruments on that record except for the drums and pedal steel. Jimmy Wayne plays that great opening lick, and Dave might play an acoustic on it. But, you know, we didn't have budgets. It was on Big Machine Records, and we were just trying to get in under the radar on that record. It became a big hit. Three week number one, one of the biggest songs that year. Um, 
that was like, once you get in the door, people were at least, okay, let me hear some more of your music. And that's when it all sort of took off and everyone started cutting songs. Dave and I I wrote a bunch of songs together that got cut. And you maybe start getting a reputation for that. And then eventually people start seeking you out, you know, rather than uh, it becomes a little bit easier than you trying to push it, push it, push it. People are pulling it, pulling it. You know what I mean? Uh, to, you would to think a degree. So than it, felt. it never felt that way. I always tell people it feels like the music business is a big fishbowl. And I got in through this crack. And I'm spending my whole life trying to not get sucked out through the crack. <laughs> it doesn't feel like in my imagination, it would be like, you know, hey, you know, it's like, so Joe, you were just calling me up to like write and no, not, not yeah. so much. But, you know, it's like you just celebrate whatever successes you have as a songwriter and you try to get whatever cut you can get cut. You know, you love your songs, like you love your kids, so you want, you want the best for them. And, you play them and you respect the artists too, like Garth Brooks. I pitch songs for Garth and Keith and, you know, to these people that I know, I'll pitch them songs, but only when they're right for them. I won't pitch them something just to throw the kids yeah, at them. It's right. like, there's a song. There's a great story where they wanted me to go out and write with Keith Urban on the West Coast and that trip got canceled. And I had written a couple ideas to go out there and hopefully find something he liked and finish it with him. Uh, I ended up finishing this song and then I was writing with another artist from Big Machine and they, we didn't get anything. We weren't, just didn't have a good day. And I played them that song. They loved it. I cut that song in that artist in hopes that they would put it out and, you know, be a single form. Uh, Long story short, the artist loses his deal, eventually submits that song to a songwriting contest that Guitar Center had with over 10,000 applicants. And wow. Keith Urban was the judge, and he picked that song to win. <laughs> Beautiful. I would like to think I was at the number one party for "Without You," uh, and Keith said, oh, "I love that song. I would, I wanted that song, and I was like, it was written for you, you know." It was like, <laughs> <laughs> right. And then I tried right. spent the rest of the number one party trying to convince convince Keith that it would be okay. Brandon was the name of the artist. Brandon would be fine. He would. He's a co-writer on it. And I put his name on as a writer. It's like, he'd be great for him to have a number one as a songwriter. He's just go ahead and take the song. But uh, he didn't want to take it from Brandon. It was Brandon's singer. Right. Wow, that's cool. You, you had something more you want to say? Oh, I, I think we kind of went past that piece. So yeah, I'm going to okay. show back right now. But Joe, when you're talk, you know, talking about your story and how moving to New York and everything that you did to get to where you're at today, how much more with the as much as music has changed in the last 20 years in the industry and everything with streaming and that, how much harder do you think it would be, say, being a 24-year-old today, in today's time in 2023, and going up to New York and trying to do the things that you did that obviously made you very successful? I think New York is, I was just up there. And it's a, it's no longer really a, a viable music scene that I I don't. I just don't think that there's a. The rents got so high. Most of the studios got pushed out, you know, and they're out in the boroughs if they're out there at all. So there's not as much of a community. I don't think New York would be the place. Nashville is is the place. Everyone's coming here, um, and I think that it's a very different world. So I don't know that my story would be the same. I'd like to think that you know people have an innate 
ability to just adapt and figure out how to make a successful outcome given whatever you put in front of them, right? It's like, give me this and I'm going to try to figure out a way to navigate it and, and be successful coming out of that. But it's a very different world now. Uh, and the royalties are so cut back that you cannot, I don't know how some of my songwriter only friends are really doing it. Uh, even with success with publishing deals, you know, you're talking about four, a minimum four way split for a co-writer if you have a publishing deal, cause you have two publishers and two writers. Now, once you get a three way, that's a six way split. And it's not uncommon to have four, five, six, seven, eight, nine writers on some of these more popular tunes. I mean, you're talking about nine writers is 18 way split. <laughs> And pennies on the dollar for royalties and stuff. And, you know, with terrestrial radio being taken out of the equation, the pay scale for terrestrial radio makes sense from a royalty standpoint. You know, all my hits had big first years. As number ones, they all made large sums, like seven figures, just at radio. Right. And now that's sort of non-existent, and it's been replaced with a royalty stream that's like, when you see on the internet, we're happy – the Pharrell song, he's like saying, I made $493 off my song. <laughs> so they replaced it with a, with a, a payment ske- uh, schedule that, that does not justify the war of attrition that it takes to write these songs, to aggregate enough of them, like a thousand songs. A songwriter, really, if you're a pro songwriter, you've written over, once your career is really ro- rocking and you've had some history, at least a thousand songs to 1500 songs. Mm. And if I have a thousand songs, I haven't added them up, but I'm sure I do. If I have a thousand songs, maybe you, I would be, have an inflated sense of self to think you might know four or five of them. Right. So I don't know that we've created a, a marketplace that allows for the long haul that it takes for songwriters to truly hit their stride. So, you know, you will have hits, but I don't know that people can stay in it long enough anymore. You know, and I'm lucky. I still write, still get cuts. I still um, do it, but I make records too. You know, I'm a producer. I've got a recording studio. You know, I'm, I'm in film. I do a bunch of other things. You know, I have a school for audio engineering and production. So I've got a lot of things that keep keep me afloat. I've got royalties, you know, quarterly royalties from my catalog and records I've produced. Um, I don't really, I don't think you could have a real life that, you know, unless you're in that top one half of 1% of people that are having all the hits, if you're just going to have the occasional hit, I don't think you could put your kid through college and, and keep them in tennis shoes. I don't know that that's a, you're certainly not going to get some guy at a mortgage company to, give you a loan with the way your years look, you know, you might have a year where you make 500 grand, you have five years where you didn't make any money. Right. It's just not a, it's not a great space right now for, they have, maybe they have figured music cover rates out. They figured it out on their best behalf, not on songwriters. So songwriters are always sort of the guys left um, waiting at the valet for their car. The last guy waiting to get the car at the valet. They're not, ever the first to eat at any feast. Well, that begs a, a good question. Cause you mentioned talk about having a school and I know you have the apprenticeship and stuff. 
Um, what do you tell these up and coming one and want to be producers and engineers? Like you're in a space where you got in at the right time. You're working with big artists. So you, you're, you're viable. You're right. You're, you're going to be able to sustain because of the level of artists that you're working with, but because the way the music industry has changed and these bands just don't make any money, they, they can't put money into the recordings anymore. Like they used to. What do you tell these up and coming wannabes, like how hard of a road it's going to be? Like what gives them inspiration for wanting to get into this business to begin with? I, I would, I think what I, I don't specifically tell, but that's not on my syllabus really. We do talk a lot about how to be successful, um, but you have to love doing it. It has to feel like <clears throat> it isn't work, right? You, I tell people they should do what they search on YouTube at night. If that's photography, you should try to be doing that as a living, right? right? It's making, writing songs or making records, whatever you're searching at night on YouTube, that is a career. You should try to be doing that because it's going to take you so much work and there's going to be so much diminishing returns that at any point a sane person would give up. Uh, you have to be able to stay through that because you love what you do, what you're doing. So if you could get that out of the way, then when you're working and someone says, oh, it's a lot of hard work, it isn't hard work if you love it. Right. So you, you'll have the at-bats, you'll have the 10,000 hours. And it's my success has is purely a consequence of the amount of time I've spent doing it. If you do anything hard, full-blown for 30-plus years, it's like negative consequences. If you speed continuously, eventually you're going to get some tickets, Right? Mm -hmm. Same thing with success. It's just you're going full bore towards something. So it's like eventually you're going to be the right place at the right time. Lightning and bottles going to coalesce and you're going to be a part of this thing that, you know, hopefully you're – my goal is to be in rooms where I have more – I have a higher probability of doing it, right? So, like, that's what I've kind of escaped my career as it's gone on to try to put myself in positions to be – in rooms that I need to be in, that I can really be running hard to stay up with, to be make sure I can be in that room because the talent level is so high. But right. the room would not be better without me. Like I'm, an, <clears throat> I'm a positive force to the room. That's what I want to be. You know, and you keep putting yourself in that situation year after year, and it's just every couple of years you'll have something. It seems like, at least in my career, that's the way it's been. Well, I think artists, too, that work with people such as yourself that, um, you know, you do have a, a, a positive disposition about yourself and about what you do and about life and whatnot. It's a lot more enjoyable to work with someone like that. So the experience in the studio of working with you has got to be like that, that you know, word of mouth has got to be the best advertising, right? So someone's saying, oh, if you want to get this done, you want to come to Nashville, you got to go to the West Barn and get this recorded because Joe's great to work with and blah, blah, blah. He's a really good songwriter, too. If you're looking for a couple songs to write, whatever. The word of mouth has got to be the best form of, of advertisement to to get lead you to the next big thing. Um, have, have, you written, you do, have you witnessed that? The records you do are right. probably the biggest consequence. You go out, when you have a record, like that first Jimmy Wayne hit, that I wrote and produced that was played 80 times a week on every radio station. So when you wow. have a number wow. one 
They play that song 80 times a week. That's 10 times a day. 10 plus, you know, with an extra 10 there, I'm doing Pittsburgh math. <laughs> they only play it during the hit hours, right? So you really have 12, 6 a.m. to about 9 o'clock at night, which is prime time. They're playing it every hour, right? You, you couldn't get away from that song. So when people hear a song or they hear a record or it's a big record, well, then they look, they find out, people say, hey, that guy did that record. Or they figure it out because credits are hard to come by these days, right. finding paper credits. And then people just, you know, they find their way to you. That's the biggest one. And word of mouth, I guess, is it too. Um, but the records, they go out there and they sell. We sold over a half a million records just at Cracker Barrel. For that Joey and Roy record. Wow. Cracker Barrel gave us a gold record for Juice Records Gold <laughs> at that time. This was early. This probably sold over a million now. Right. But uh, just in that little like Cracker Barrel store, we sold over half a million. How, so, how are you ever going to think of that in advance? You're not. You know what I mean? You're not. You're like, let, let, right. let's, let's tackle the, the Cracker Barrel audience or the crowd, you know? <laughs> but people, you know, people find you. And you know, my goal is to be a part of records. They're my records. They're your records. And it's like, how can I kind of join your band or join you as a songwriter and make, help you get the record that you either hear in your head or didn't know could exist in your head? How do we make a record? I'm not making my record. I don't have to tour on it for years and sing it. God forbid it's a massive hit and you have to sing it for the rest of your life. I want to make sure that when I'm a part of those creative situations, that I'm doing something that is in the best, like my fiduciary duty is to serve the artist and right. help them make the record they're supposed to make in the best possible, possible record. Sometimes that means very rarely, hardly ever. I can't remember the last time I've had a, a big argument with an artist. Sometimes that means you have to fight for the song or the record or the belief of what it should be. And, and I want to be proven wrong. So I want them to come back at me. If we're fighting about a song we're writing, as long as we're really fighting about our, the song and not our egos, we can go out and have lunch afterwards, right? right? So that's what I want to do is make be a part of and to make records that, that people feel like we've truly gotten what it is that they wanted. You know, the, that record, make it the version that they always hoped it would be. And sometimes they don't know what that is and we build it into that. But my goal is not to make a Joe West record. It's just to be a necessary part of extraordinary records, you know, try to be a part of those records and not own them, not have ego in them, you know, try to get my ego out of every room I'm in, make sure that I'm participating in what we're doing that day creatively, make something that truly could be a genre shifting event, you know, like, um, like when you had Nirvana come on the scene and a whole world hair bands, right? And you had right. some of these records that came on and just changed the whole perspective of music. You know, mm -hmm. that's how those records, I believe, come about. Is people truly chasing a great idea. Well, that being said, I mean, are you still yourself personally? Are you still in search of like, like that bigger thing? Or have you are you like happy with where you're at? Or are you always still looking like, you know what? I'm, 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 I still, I know I got something better in me to offer someone or to, I, there's something that's going to come out of my studio or out of my, my writing, my, my creativity, my head, that's going to like really put me on the map or something like that. Or have you said, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I've established uh, my career. I've got a really good studio. I've worked with a lot of great artists. I'm pretty 
comfortable with where I am right now. Where are you at personally in your head? I think that in regards to all of that, once I had a couple of hits, I was so overwhelmed with maintaining what everyone thought of me because inevitably somebody has got something horrible to say about you or put on a comment on the internet. I realized I didn't have any control over that. So I just stopped thinking about it. And in regards to having a big hit or doing something of consequence, uh, I think I just want to make records that are great records. And if I, if I'm successful at making great records, the rest of it works itself out. I don't feel like I need to prove anything or I don't have a desire to prove anything. I think that, that accolades are well appreciated. Um, they change with the wind. So you're a genius one day and you're a loser the next. Um, I negate both of those things. I can be a part of genius things and I can be an idiot at times. <laughs> so I just want to be, working on great things, things that are extraordinary. And if it's just another pop record or another country record, these country records got me worn out. I don't want to do them. And I'm not doing them. You know, I'm wasting my time doing those records. Even if they go on to be bigger successes than the records I'm laying my hands to, I want to be a part of things that I that I really think can be extraordinary. And not That's just ring a bell, Pavlovian, you know, ring the bell, get a piece of cheese, right? <laughs> I don't want to do that. I want to be a part of great records. If that means I won't have as successful of records, I'm fine with that. Uh, Cause what's really success. You know, I got to thank my wife and my parents on the stage in Los Angeles and hold a Grammy. I mean, that was a pretty good night. That's pretty uh, that awesome. was not wasted on me. Um, I do would like to do that again, but I'm going to just, I think if I focus on writing the best song that I can write that day and making the best record I can make that day, trying to take records that I think are maybe a little bit that are more interesting and that stimulate me creatively. Um, not to say that those can't be super commercial records. I hope they are. Um, if I focus on that, all that other stuff works itself out, but I, I don't lose any sleep at all anymore about like trying to do something and to prove something because even my efforts, it, it just pollutes my, it pollutes my pursuit. It will make me make decisions that may not be the right decisions. You know, maybe I should be doing this weirdo record that feels like, you know, an unmarketable version, like the Beck record was when it was being recorded, what I imagined the Beck record, the first Beck record, right? Some of these records that weren't fitting right in where music was at the time. I wouldn't take those records if all I was concerned about was staying on top. You know, right. my goal is what's on top Who cares what's on top. You know, I've had a tiny little taste of that world and um, didn't make me a bit more happy And for every ounce of glory. There's a bucket of anguish that comes with those things. So yeah, you, you got to feel it and you've got to be in, uh, in, you know, it, have the passion for the project that you're working on. Like you said, it doesn't matter whether it's, it's the next big thing or something that's just going to fizzle out. And, uh, you know, if you can work that balance of 70% of the time you're a genius and 30% of the time you're an idiot, people are going to remember the genius oh. side of you than the idiot side. I will take the 70%. That's a good, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I made that record. I had made a record for Joey and Rory one prior, then they did a record. Then I did the, the last record that won the Grammy. Mm -hmm. um, and I had made that record because they were friends of mine. 
they needed a studio. Right. They needed me to produce it. They asked me to produce it. So uh, she was sick and um, eventually succumbed to her, her illness right. after that record was released. I didn't take that record because it was an odds are odds on hit. It was um, a record of traditional hymns. It outsold every record in the country one week above right. Adele, above every hip hop record. Mm-hmm. It was the number one all genre record. I was in the jungle in um, Nicaragua with a buddy of mine. We were up in the Esteli Valley. My buddy, um, one of his good friends is Nick Perdemo, who owns Perdemo Cigars. Hmm. Yeah. We were up at Nick's farm and we had like dial up internet. So you would hear like the modem doing that old AOL. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, All those right. Sounds. And I started getting emails where people were saying, hey, that record, it was released that week. That record, you know, it's number two on iTunes. It's number one on Amazon. And I was like, wow, isn't that wild? Then I got home and found out that it only took 2,000 copies of digital sales for that to be the number one record on iTunes, which blew me mm. away. Wow. What really blew me away was that it was the number one record that week because it sold 68,000 hard copies. People went out and bought the record. Mm. Its first week, it sold 70,000 units, and they had run out of the pressing. So it was the number one record that week. The next week, it sold more, and they were hard copies of the record. Yeah. And this is a record that did not, I didn't take that record for any other reason that I wanted my, I knew that I could help my friends make a record and they had some challenges to make that record that required us to piece together vocals from partial takes and from, from USB mics on a bus or in a a hospital room or on half of a rough take in a studio from the, from the tracer vocal, you know, the scratch vocal, we had to sort of assemble that vocal. And I knew that, that wasn't a thing that was maybe now in Nashville, but at that time in Nashville, there wasn't a lot of guys. I knew I could help them do that. Yeah, I was the right guy for that job. Right. So that was not a record that I'd been out chasing some hmm. Luke Bryan record. Right. Good Lord. If I had made that record, instead of making that record, I would have taken myself out of that story, out of that timeline. So that's what I'm talking about. It's like, I've always found that if I do records for the right reasons and I try not to get myself confused and motivated from, from anxiety or fear or trying to do this thing that I think will result in this other thing, if I just chase the music and try to be the best version, you know, be the best version of myself as a creator, but just try to serve the records that I'm on, that there's usually good outcomes. And they don't come as when I want them to come, but they come every couple of years. You know, it's like, oh, here goes one. And it's, thousand you did over here didn't do anything you still love those records and <laughs> right. part of them but you can kind of count on every couple of years something poking its head up and being high enough that it becomes something people remember well the, the the fact that you get to do on a regular basis what you absolutely love to do um i think really helps tamper that uh that notion of every single day that I go to work and every single thing that I got to do has got to be the ultimate, the, the next best thing. It's got to be better than yesterday. That's not the case. It's the fact that you know that eventually the the odds are and the numbers are there that the the peak is going to hit where, where this one project that you worked on, that you took, that you took a passion about and that you poured your heart into is going to succeed 
not because it's what you sought out or not because that's just what you do because you're the the hit maker and and stuff like that it's because the fact that you're doing what you love you pour your heart and soul when you pour your passion in it you're doing it for the right reasons right god may be blessing you for your for your heart more than your desires um i i don't know i think that 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 has a lot to do with it because if you were super ambitious about um trying to be the the guy that's that just knocking out hit after hit after album after album and stuff like this i don't know that you'd have that kind of success i think that you the way you're trudging along and the way you're you're doing exactly what you're doing you're in my eyes if i was uh, uh, an up-and-coming engineer or if i was an established producer i'd say you're living the dream buddy <laughs> yeah i'm lucky i'm i'm grateful um and you always have the music to fall back on that's your greatest reward right you're making music that you're not proud of, well, then you'll really feel empty at the end of the year. So that's awesome. Well, the last thing I want to talk about um, is uh, well, there's actually two things I want to talk about. Um, is is getting the studio because I remember since I've obviously we've known each other for a long time. I've, I've we've been connected on social media for a long time. I remember when you were first tackling building uh, the West Barn Studio, and I remember those pictures, and I'm like, what? What do you think? And um, how did that come about? And was that just nothing but a pure vision of this? Yeah, this is where it has to be. This is what it's going to be. And it's going to be great. Whatever. I mean, what, what did you do by looking at that and saying, this is, this is it. I, I made that record. Daniel Lanwell, the rock producer was on that Emmylou Harris record. So Malcolm Byrne was the producer, but then then Dan Lanwall, who had done Wrecking Ball for her, um, had come in for about a week. I want to think that's about how long he came in. So Dan kind of produced for the for a week, and I was working with Dan, and and Dan works in an open control room environment, right, where everybody is. There's no control room tracking room, and once I got a taste of that, I was like, okay, this is much better, much better than me all these years in one room and the band in another and us trying to communicate over talkbacks and video cameras. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was looking all around Nashville for a commercial space and just couldn't find anything that I wanted. Um, so I ended up buying 12 acres, and put a barn on it, big barn and put ISO booths in, you know, to isolate things, not people. Right. These ISO booths have floor-to-ceiling glass, so even if there is a person in there playing drums, you're, you're, it's like you're rehearsing. You know, it's like the distance you would be in a, in your basement working with people. You know, so we can do huge sessions there. We just did a 14-piece band with nine horns in there. We can do big, giant sessions. We've got a big 80-input console, just like the one. It, it's the exact make and model, the big one at Audiomation. Right flying faders and we've got a whole API console racked. We've got tons and tons and tons of gear. So we could scale to a very large recording scenario or we can just be me behind the console with an acoustic guitar laying down scratch vocals and work tapes for songs. So uh, it it ended up being on the property here that made the most sense. And then we built a house on this property. That's where I'm at now is our house is up on top of the hill on this property. it's really great. I can't imagine it any other way. You just walk out. I have a German Shepherd. That's usually <laughs> hunkered down around me. We go down in the mornings and, you know, I work. I try to get down there around 10, maybe 11 at the latest. And 
usually worked about four on things and don't work the weekends unless there's some calamity. And, you know, when there's not work, I'm up here doing paperwork. I'm doing all the other stuff that's attached to my work, you know, and film projects or whatever there is to be done. But it's a, it's a really great, uh, I'm so glad I didn't buy a commercial space up in town. Right. It's great. We're down in Franklin, which is about a half hour south of Nashville. Now it's a sweet studio. And uh, I mean, you've it's had great. a lot of big artists in there and just, uh, you know, regular bands in there. And uh, that that also brings up another thing. I'm, I'm pretty sure you might have talked about this if this were the case. But in the first segment, Mark and I were talking about uh, Dolly Parton's new album called Rockstar. She, and I know she's in the air. She didn't record that at, at uh, the West Barn, did she? No. no. Well, that would have been cool if she would if she did. Some of my friends played on the record, though. So she's good. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we can't wait to hear. We were, we were just talking about. It. Obviously, we we're a little premature because it's not out yet. But uh, just commenting about all the 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 stars that are lined up to you know be on there, and like I said, I'm sure it's all said and done and buttoned up by now. But um, yeah, looking forward to to that album. So the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was uh, the documentary that you were involved in, and uh, I, were you did you produce it, put it together? Yeah, it was um, called Lim Limitless. Right. L I M B B right. Limbitless. Limbitless, right. Yeah. And uh, uh wonderful Gabe, story. Gabe Adams. Yeah, Gabe Gabe Adams, uh phenomenal uh story. I've seen him on other talk shows and stuff like that. So how did that come about? Like that working on that documentary? Well, I saw him and was like just mystified. He was making well, Gabe Adams was born with what's the, the disorder? Oh man, I I don't want to mispronounce it, so I'm not going to, it has the word hand in it, but he's got, he was born with no arms or legs. So he's essentially just sort of body. Body mm. head, and he's got, you know, he's been able to accommodate <clears throat> a life that doesn't require anyone else. I saw him doing a video where he was making macaroni and cheese. Mm. And I was just like, this guy was blowing my mind. And I just I remember watching this video It had like a hundred million views. It was massive video and I remember thinking like if I could get my son and my students to have the heart of this guy mm. right the Rudy remember the movie Rudy yeah that determination that the Gabe had I was like and mm. I also selfishly wanted to glean from that being like if I could just be around this guy I could get some of his like mojo right he was mm. such an intense dude um, so I figured out, I don't know how I found him, but eventually found him and, um, turns out he's a songwriter and a singer. So he started sending me a bunch of work tapes and they were really good. And then it's like, you know, let's just do something. Let's have an adventure. Let's go hang out. We'll tape it. So, you know, I brought my son along with me and, um, a buddy of mine who I use a lot as a technical director and I wrote it and, and directed it. Um, it's in the film festival thing right now, so it's not out and available on YouTube, you know, so it can't be watched. But it was just a really great experience. We went to Utah, went down to Bryce Canyon, and we wrote a song on the side of this beautiful mountain. And then we flew to Nashville and we um, made a record, a real record. And it was just the story of us doing that mm. and the experience, you know. My buddy Jimmy always says, like, 
time is the one thing, it's the most important asset we have to give to people. So you shouldn't waste any time. You shouldn't waste people's time and you shouldn't waste any of your own time. And half of that documentary was written while we were doing it. We had a general scheme of what we wanted to do, but we just wanted to be present during it and experience it. And we had this beautiful, beautiful moment. The whole thing was one giant, beautiful moment. And at the end of it, kind of had written itself, you know, the lessons to learn from that and what we were sort of shooting for and we were where we wanted to point ourselves, you know, being successful is not an accident. It's on mm -hmm. purpose every time. Right. Right. Uh, everyone you everyone seems to think they're waiting for their big break, but it's really just like preparation meets opportunity, right? And if you are extraordinary enough times, you're eventually going to succeed. And Gabe proved that every time. From whether it be like how he goes up and down stairs or how he gets up and brushes his teeth. He doesn't have any arms, right? So this is just like a pure determination built into a person. Right. If we have that, that's just a matter. If you have that and a passion and some skill to develop towards that, that's all my students needed. That's all my son needs to go on and be a successful person. That's all I need to continue to sort of keep the bar high and sort of pursue this to pursue an extraordinary experience. If all we have is time, we have to make sure the time that we're spending, that we are honoring it and that we're living it to the fullest. We're trying to be present and be the best versions of ourselves. And with that always comes great outcomes. And if the mm. world doesn't recognize you as an artist or as a songwriter or as a player or as a creator, um, doesn't matter. Right. Who cares. Absolutely. Yeah of the day it's the process of you enjoying the art that you're making you having people eventually it does change their lives it's being knowing that you were part of something that changed somebody else's life you know mm. that's um that's what i took away from it and it was as much for me as it was as much as i was trying to tell a story i was hoping the story would come mm. in to focus and and with enough patience it did and with right. not trying to force it it really became this beautiful mm. story so are, are you uh, seeking distribution right now? Is that what you're looking for? Or? No, you know, that was just something that we did because it was yet another thing that's like, oh, this is a great piece of art we can be a part of. Uh, Eddie Bauer came on board and funded it. So it was a partnership uh, with Eddie Bauer. Oh, they that was nice. Our shooting costs. Um, it's it's um, in a couple film festivals right now. So it's off. It's not really viewable anywhere. Uh, we're in the process of shooting another TV pilot right now that we're going to be shopping, but there may be a, a, people bring that documentary up all the time. So that's awesome. It's one of those conversations leading to another conversation with means and an opportunity that it ends up becoming something. Well, that's great. So what, uh, what's next on, on your list? What are you working on now? What do you got coming up or that you can talk about? Maybe there's stuff you can't can talk, talk about. about right most now. of it. I can't okay. talk about TV pilot because it's, 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 uh, <clears throat> but it's a great TV show. It's, it's about the, the gift of music, essentially. Like, uh, okay. The gift of music. Yeah. Um, but the, um, I'm starting to mix a new record right now. I've got two other records that I'm, producing and mixing at the time. I've got the school coming up in the fall. Um, we sh just shot this first TV pilot, which is now two and a half terabytes sitting on a drive on my desk over here that is not going to get edited until I put it together, you know? Mm. 
So uh, anytime there's a free moment, there's always two terabytes worth of work sitting there. <laughs> looking right. me in the face to, to, to make something out of it. So it's always something to do, which is a great position to be in. You know, you always just have, and then I have 12 acres. So I got to jump on a Kubota tractor with a six foot finish mower and drag it around for an hour and a half to keep the weeds well, you, from growing over the you, roof. And you got your own podcast uh, from the, uh, from the West barn, right? Yeah, we have and, not, uh, we have not been, we have not shot any of those recently. We did a hundred and some episodes, but those are pretty popular. People seem to like this. You, I mean, your plans on uh, picking that back up or recording new uh, sessions? Desperately, but it's, it's such a commitment to do. We were doing two episodes a week and we did it religiously um, for a year and it was shot it was shot for camera shoot at my barn for the beginning wow. of COVID. And then we did some zoom stuff. Um, the audio only portion of that is very successful around the world. I mean, all over the world, it's the top 10 in 40 countries and the YouTube version, it does all right. I get these notices like we have 250,000. I don't know what an impression is, but that's what we have. 250,000 impressions a month <laughs> on YouTube. <laughs> Who knows what that right. means? But, you know, people seem to really like that content, and we, we would like to get back to it. My buddy Mike Shimshak is a great hang. He's, uh, anytime I can do something with Mike Shimshak, I'm there. Awesome. So uh, people were, want to follow you on social media. We're, uh, we'll, we'll flash it up on the screen. Why don't you yeah. tell them your, your social media grubs? Yeah. I don't really spend a bunch of time on there. Facebook is probably the one that gets the most of my attention. I don't even go on Instagram. What's your, what's your, fa what's your Facebook handle? Where where do they find at sure. at Joe, Joe Western? Or... I have a picture of me. I think uh, I think currently it's a picture of me at the Ryman doing one of these. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll put those up there for you. So look, Joe. Hey, look, I I, I wish you nothing but the best uh, with anything you've got uh, coming up. And you know, I know we'll we'll keep in touch. We'll uh, yeah, man. Come talk to Nashville. Stuff. I want to come to Nashville. Last time I was there, I, we, I just it wasn't working out for me to to come down to your place. We tried to make it work, but I was only there for for a couple of days, and it just uh, the timing just didn't work out. But I I plan on coming back soon, and uh, I'll definitely make it out there. And um, I know you know. Uh, do you know my buddy John Elefante? Oh, I big fan of John Elefante. I don't know him personally. Oh, okay. Big fan yeah. of that Kansas record. I think he sang on Vinyl Confessions. Yes, yeah, and Drastic Measures. Uh, oh, uh, a good friend of mine. He's been on the show here before. I so I keep uh, threatening with him too that I'm going to come down to Nashville and visit with him. So yeah, man. But uh, so yeah, what? we got to make it happen. I just you know, I'm I'm getting to the point now where the kids are getting older. They're in college, and I I might have some time to do some of this stuff. So <laughs> you never know. Yeah, man. But, we'll uh, It'll be all good right, John. Hey, uh, good luck with everything you've got going on. So for uh, the Joe West, and you need to start picking back up on that uh, Nashville and, and music industry. in the music business. <laughs> the Joe West and uh, the Big M, Mark Anthony over there. I'm Michael Cadry, and we will see you next time on Blabber Brain Show. See you.